But worship being a lifestyle. Paul uh, in the book of Romans, uh, as he walks through what is really a biblical theology of the gospel, and uh, Romans chapter 1 to chapter 11, when you get to chapter 12, he makes this uh, popular statement about worship, right? He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, which is all he had just spent time explaining, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Some translations say your reasonable service. And he says, what? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Worship is what we do, not just on Sunday, but Sunday through Saturday. And once again on Sunday. But I want to take time for us to focus in on what we're doing right now and the presence of the word in this corporate gathering, which is but a subset of our whole life worship. That, that, that we gather for a particular purpose, but ultimately we scatter back into the world to live on our lives. But I want us to focus on what we're doing right now, what we come to call corporate worship, or the gathering of God's people. When I was, in, uh, when I was a young adult pastor uh, several years ago in Kentucky, on Monday nights, I hosted this Bible study for young adults called Real Talk. You can only imagine what we chop it up in there about relationships. It's all going to end up in conversation. But what I would do every Monday at the beginning of Real Talk is I would ask them what the sermon was about on Sunday. And early on, when I, when I first started hosting Real Talk, and I would put this question out, you know, I, I would hear, like, uh, 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 That's that Tommy Strong from Marvel. You don't know. Don't worry about it. It's a professionally unemployed person. <laughs> but they didn't know what worship, what, what, what the sermon was about. But after a while, they figured out when we asked this question every week, we started doing what? We started taking notes on Sunday. And so when I would come in and ask that question, they would be like, okay, point number one was, his introduction was. But <laughs> <laughs> I wanted them to think about, right, that, that, that I, I, I do think it's a fact that, that our behaviors are informed by our that, that, that our worldview is shaped by the things that we believe. And I think for the Christian, our worldview ought to be shaped by the word of God. So what I was getting at was, I, I, I didn't understand how they felt equipped to live Monday through Saturday if they didn't remember the word that the church had gathered around on Sunday. So what we do here in corporate worship is important. Our oriented this service around the word of God is intentional. And I want to hone in on a particular section of the Old Testament narrative that I think points that out. You realize you know, if you're a professional believer in this today, and you may sitting on the Word of God as part of your regular life routine, that it's possible that you could actually hear upwards of a thousand or so sermons over the course of life. That's what it means. That's a lot of word <laughs> to be held accountable to. Some of y'all are like, I see you But all of that word that we hear on a regular basis is God's grace toward us and maturing us, as Pastor T already prayed, maturing us in Christ. 
And I don't think that maturity in Christ actually means leaving or moving on to something. I think maturity in Christ actually means being here and dug down deeper into who you already know. I don't think that you ever graduate from the gospel. I think, I think we spend our, our life of, of what we call sanctification really understanding the reality of what it is that we profess to believe. But in this particular passage, we're going to see uh, that Ezra Nehemiah, really one book uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible, but Ezra Nehemiah tracing this history of the people of God who've been exiled. People of God uh, found themselves exiled. How did that happen? It's really a, an interesting story. Uh, the one true and living God, out of the overflow of his perfection, creates everything that exists. And he calls it good. As a matter of fact, he calls it goody good. We translate that very good because it sounds like God is talking about what's goody good. And he calls it good. And we see very quickly that the crowd of creation humanity, given everything that they would ever need, provided by the one true and living God, most ultimately a, a relationship with him. Instead of choosing God, instead of choosing to live their lives glorifying God as he had created them to do, and spreading that glory throughout the earth, the dominion that he had granted to them, they do what? They choose themselves. Instead of, instead of being obedient to the command of God, we see, we see our first uh, parent, we see Adam, we see him disobeying God in the garden and subjecting humanity to sin and death. That's Genesis. But one of the things I love about God, I don't know about you, but that God is not a reactive God. He's proactive. In other words, God doesn't simply wait for something to happen and then sit up and say, okay, how am I going to rectify this? That's what we do. God has never caught our guard by anything that takes place. And I come through from all heart because I know that when I go before God and I feel like I'm in a situation of crisis and I feel like that God, I hope you're sitting down like I am. <laughs> and so we know that even though we see this fall in Genesis 3, that God had already decided within himself that he was going to redeem a sinful people. Theologians call this the covenant of redemption. Uh, this is part of uh, what's known as covenant theology, but, but more, more so than what it's called, is simply the reality that the doctrine of what we call the sovereignty of God didn't just show up in the New Testament. That God has been sovereign ever since, or rather before, he said action to the movie that is human So God has decided within himself that he is going to, the Father is going to choose a people to redeem, and the Son is going to accomplish that redemption, and the Father and the Son is going to send the Spirit to apply that redemption. He decided that all by himself way before the thing ever got started. And then people ask, why? He goes, what? You can ask him when you see him, but I, 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 think, I, think, I think this has something to do with it. I think God is so awesome. I think God is so glorious. And I think God wanted to flex his awesome and his gloriousness so much that he actually devised his plan to show up how gracious and how loving and how merciful he is. Hey. I used to sell, uh, sell diamonds uh, when I was in Sydney back in Dallas before I moved to Louisville. 
on a cold vapor rate. But one of the things that I thought was interesting is I thought that when you were selling diamonds, you wanted a bunch of light, right, shining in the building. So when people talk about a diamond, you see all that blade, right? So people come to see the diamond to see how shiny and pretty it is. But what we discovered is that while the light showed much of the brilliance of the diamond, it actually takes a little bit of darkness too to show other facets of the brilliance. And I think that has something to do with why God divides us in the way that he did. I think God is so great. God is so glorious. And yeah, he could display much of himself with just light. But I think he said, I'm going to include the darkness in this. So I can truly show who I am. So God now shows us that amidst the judgments that he's given to Adam and Eve, we see what? We see a tinge of gray. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you see what's called the first hint of the gospel. And you see that God, even as he's judging Adam and Eve, gives us a glimpse of the fact that there's going to be gray. And so how does he roll out this plan? Well, he puts a man named Abram, doesn't he? And he gives us 12. And he makes a promise to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you land. I'm going to give you seed, and I'm going to make your name a blessing, right? And Abraham's like, okay, cool. I need a son to do that. See the story of Abraham, or Abram, rather than Sarai, as they journey on with God and trying to understand that he's going to fulfill the promise that he made to them. So Abraham gets Isaac, right? Isaac gets Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. The end of the book of Genesis, you see the people of God go into Egypt, a family. Think about a few dozen people. This is the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. Think about a few dozen people. When they're in Egypt, they go to millions of people. And the text at the end of Exodus says that when they're in Egypt, a Pharaoh rises to power who did not know Yahweh. And so now you have millions of people covenant, covenanted with God, but yet they find themselves in slavery, subjected. The story of Exodus is about how God being faithful to his promise, comes in, uses Moses and Aaron and the mountain to bring them out, right? A lot of movies been made about that. I ain't gonna talk about that. But God brings them out in the book of Exodus, but doesn't just bring them out for bringing them out safe, right? He brings them out because he wants to fashion for himself a people. And so the text says he brings them out so that they may worship. So you got this nation. You got a nation, you gotta have a king. God says, okay, I, I, I'll be your king. I'll be your God, and you shall be my people. You got a nation, you got a king, you gotta have laws. So God institutes the law, or the constitution, if you will, this new form theocracy, this God ruled nation. So Exodus 20, you see the Ten Commandments that he sent them. And so you're like, it's great. So God has fashioned a nation, they're gonna display his glory to the nation. They're going to be used of God. He's given them the law. But what do we see? Just like earlier, we see that this problem of sin has not yet totally been dealt with. Moses is still up on the mountain in Exodus 32, and the people are downstairs at the bottom, down at the bottom base of the mountain. He's getting the law. They're down at the base. They've already broken They're down there dancing, probably naked, around both paths. Do you remember what Aaron tells Moses when Moses comes to him and says, Aaron, what, what, help me, Aaron. Help me, I'm dead. <laughs> and Aaron's like, I said, why? 
fire. Just go and have That's literally what he told me. You can imagine most of his Joshua. Joshua, Joshua takes them in. They possess the 
end, he was concerned about our whole nation. So Joshua, when you go in and take possession of this land, don't be missing the matches with the people. At, at first, it's all, it's all good, right? They're faithful. They drive out the people of the land. You want to know how, how and why does God do this? Right? Well, again, this is the theocracy. And God is not only using the nation of Israel to display uh, his glory and holiness to the nation, but he's also using them as instruments of his judgment. This is a particular time period of redemptive history where God is reigning and ruling sovereignly over a nation, and he's using that nation as instruments of his judgment. That doesn't happen today, by the way. But they started making the magic, though. And now the people of God that was meant to be a display of God's glory and goodness and holiness to the nation, they just corrupted the And Judges is an interesting book because the theme of Judges is actually at the end of Judges. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. It says this. And in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right. That just sounds bad, doesn't it? <laughs> Basically, nobody was concerned with the law of God, so everybody just did their. What you doing today? Okay, that's what we y'all go ahead and do me over here. Everybody's doing that. And we see this roller coaster of a narrative from the book from throughout the book of Judges that said, and the people did evil in the sight of God. And God raises up the judge, they do good for a while, and then the people do evil. First and second Samuel is interesting because you have this people now that are being ruled or supposed to be ruled by God. They look around and say, okay, we want a king like all the other nations. Imagine that. God is ruling over you and he said, you know what, that's cool, but I really prefer somebody else. <laughs> so they took Saul. Saul was tall, dark, and handsome. It literally says he was the most handsome of the men. They took Saul to be their case. God graciously allows them uh, to, to have a fulfillment of their desire. But look at, look at God's sovereignty, right? He institutes this, this, this kingship that after the bitter covenant is being given to the people, the institution of the kingship makes way for that. You just see God's sovereignty playing with, with, with our fallenness in that regard. But they do Saul. Saul is okay for a time period. Saul is that. So they go with David. David is anointed. You have that battle with Goliath. Okay, David might be cool. David's not cool. <laughs> <laughs> David is a man after God's own heart. We, we see David's problem. David has a son, Solomon. Solomon builds a temple. All oh, when they were wandering, they had this traveling tabernacle. But now they build a particular temple at a particular place, a particular site that's going to be a central uh, aspect of worship for Yahweh. Solomon has a son, <clears throat> Rehoboam. Rehoboam decides that he's going to rule even more harshly than his father Solomon in the kingdom of Israel. So you have ten tribes of the twelve go to the north with a new king named Jeroboam, and you have two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah. And the prophetic witness of the Old Testament is the prophets largely and mainly speaking to these two different sets of the people of God calling them what? Back to basics. 
But we see what happens with the northern kingdom in 722 BC. The Assyrians come in because of their corruption, because of the fact that they are unholy, they have no regard for the law of God. God judges them completely, and the Assyrians come in and wipe them away. Now it's up to Judah. And you would think, I mean, I grew up in a household with an older brother, I remember him too. You would think that when you see Big Brother get a woman, <laughs> I mean, you, I mean, if you're watching it happen. <laughs> and they proceed amicably for a while. But in 550, the Babylonians The Babylonians take Judah off the captivity. While they're in captivity, world power switched. And now Cyrus, who's king of Persia, overtakes Babylon. <laughs> people that we have in our text are under Persian rule. And they've been exiled. They were taken away by, by to Babylon. Cyrus comes in, he takes out Babylon, now they're under Persian rule. And an edict that was given, given for the Ezra, under Persian rule, is that they are not allowed to go back and rebuild their temple. Because when the Babylonians came in, they, they wrecked shop. And so now we see uh, this plan taking place to come and rebuild the temple. This happens in waves. The Rubabel leaves in the first return to rebuild the temple. You see that in Ezra chapter 3. Nehemiah leaves in the rebuilding of the wall. You see that at the beginning of this book. And I think what's going on here is Ezra is helping to rebuild worship. Because it doesn't help if you have a temple to worship God. And you have a wall surrounding that to worship God when you ain't got worshipers on the inside of them. So what needs to be rebuilt is also the worship of God, and it's interesting to note that the main central facet that they use to rebuild the worship of God is what? The word of God. If worship is going to be rebuilt, if we're going to worship Yahweh the way he has called us to worship him, we're going to have to consult the very thing that he's given us that tells us about who he is. We're going to use the word of God to rebuild worship. I want to point out some observations in this particular passage that we're going to walk through just to highlight some aspects of one, the people, and some aspects of the preacher. So I'm going to highlight some things about the people, and I'm going to highlight some things about the preacher. Number one, the people. Here's the first thing their presence. Look at verse one. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Stop. All the people gathered. <coughs> the word that she there is actually reflected to basically say they gathered themselves. What you see here is unction from within themselves. Nobody has to go around from tent to tent and say, You come to worship today? They, they choose to gather themselves because they recognize that the saying that goes around in our circles uh, a lot that, 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 that your relationship with God ought to be personal, but it ought never always be private. That, that yeah, I have a relationship with God because of Christ's work on my behalf, the Spirit bearing witness inside of me, but I put that relationship on display. I don't just mind my relationship with God and my people. Or in my house. But I gather with the saints, and we all glory over the relationship that we have been granted by a gracious God. So they should 
used to gather themselves, they come together, they decide that it's right that they gather together and sit under the word of God. You'll see this this reality in the New Testament in several places, but if the writer of Hebrews mentioned it outright in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, right? He says, We got to consider how to stir up one another towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but it says, Encouraging one another, as you see that day, I think he's speaking of that end day, approaching. We're commanded to frequently gather ourselves together because it is good and right for the saints to dwell together. Not only do you see their presence, you see their preference. Look at the second part of the first verse. Look what they did. They told Ezra to bring the book of the law. You catch that? They said, Ezra, I don't know what you have planned for this service. (laughs) Do what you're going to do. Do you plan? But along with whatever you're going to do, bring a book. It was their preference. This is what they wanted. They told the man of God to bring the book. They recognized that this law is life to them. And saying, I find that, you know, I find trouble with my own heart when I see that I'm claiming that word that gives me life. But I have seasons where I'm not interested as much as I should be. And I'm often, you know, I'm, I'm conflicted with the irony of that. I claim that this is, this is what has given me life. But in some seasons, I'm just like, ah, what, 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 what do we do with that? What do I do with that? I, I think, I think you, 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 by the power of the Spirit, not your own strength, you still submit yourself to the because I think that, that you come to recognize what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, uh, verse 7, that, that this law is something that revives my soul. In other words, when, when you're in that state, when you're just like, ah, about the word of God, you can't get you can't get that fixed apart from the word of God. Ain't that something? <laughs> when you're like, ah, about the word, the only thing that fixes that is the word. <laughs> the only thing that fixes that is the word. So you like, I don't feel like reading, I don't feel like you just uh, you gotta get in there. Because the psalmist says, you know, the law of the Lord is what revives the soul. Because these testimonies, these, these, these rules, he says later in verse 9, he says they are righteous and they are true. Psalm 19, verse 9. Verse 10 says, as a matter of fact, they're to be desired more than gold. Even fine gold. He says they're sweeter than what? Honey. He's like, I don't even like
see that and all that what they said. But we understand that Moses wrote this, but God commanded. You see that? You see, both of those there in one verse. This is this is the law of the book of Moses, but Moses didn't get it by himself. So he reflected what the New Testament will pick up, 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. That holy man wrote, yeah, they did right, but they wrote that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is what God reads. That I understand that when I approach this text, I'm not simply approaching something that has been authored by human hands. Yes, it was authored by human hands, but God in his sovereignty, in the spirit superintending of that authorship, he used, yes, their vocabulary. He used their personality. He used all of the human faculties that go into writing, but he made sure that what was written was exactly what God wanted them to write. This isn't just some ordinary book. They recognize that. They tell Ezra, break the law of, that Moses wrote, but we understand that God commanded. Number three, not only do we see their presence and their preference, we see their preoccupation. Look at verse three, particularly the second part. I'll read the whole verse. It says, he read from it, faking the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who understand, the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. What a word, attentive. I call this their preoccupation. They were attentive. You notice how long that, 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 that they said they were reading from that morning until midday? About 6,000. That they're standing there. Six. Did I say that was 6,000? Some of y'all like right now, like, you know, pressure, why Before the Word of God is indicative of their posture before God. 
Because there is a thinking today that says you can have a vibrant, thriving relationship with God that's separated from this word. That's a lie. I hear it all the time. I have a relationship with God. Oh, oh, it's oh, it's tight. You know what you've been reading lately, nothing. <laughs> there is there is there is this 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 agenda going on. The practice of Christianity from the word that birthed it. And the more space you get in between your practice of Christianity and the word, the more that practice of Christianity becomes false. They were reverent of it, they were submissive to it. There was a direct correlation between the status of their relationship with God and the status of their relationship to the Word. You heard this phrase, you don't worship the Bible, you worship the God of the Bible. Say that. And if I'm listening charitably, I think I, I, I understand what that is. That's what you like, well, I, I, I learned what it means to worship God by what He has said in the Word. And that's how it is. You need God to tell you how you want to be worshipped. That's not something that we just concoct by ourselves. Because typically what happens when you self-style your Christianity, when you self-style your Christianity, it just becomes styled after you. When you self-style your notion and conception and your framework of who God is, after a while, it just becomes a glaring image of you. Like, you know, your God looks very, it looks like you. <laughs> <laughs> you act like you, you get the glory like you. <laughs> so we need God to reveal to us both who he is and how he desires to be worshipped. Isn't that right? The second temptation I see as the kind of converse of the one I just there's a broad temptation to separate one's profession and practice of Christianity from the Word, but then there's also this temptation. It's not, not to distance oneself from the Bible, but to really change the way the Bible is understood. You got that going on as well. Not that don't have anything to do with that. You also see many people saying, no, you shouldn't have something to do with that. We just need to reinterpret what that is. What that, what, what that says. So now you see uh, the first, what's called the perspicuity of scripture being child. Perspicuity just means clear. It means that if I approach this text with humility, and I understand that it's not just me approaching this text with my abilities of interpretation, but I have the spirit bearing witness and helping me and illuminating the word of God, then it can't be understood. And I also don't have the spirit bearing witness in me, but I also need to interpret outside of community, do I? So I submit myself and my project of interpretation to a larger community so that we're checking one another. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, I don't see that. You're like, well, I do. <laughs> but you have this movement now that says, no, you can have a relationship with the Word of God. We just need to change it a little bit. We need to update it a little bit. Bruce Walkie in Old Testament prop, uh, wrote a book on Old Testament theology because there's different postures that people have to and I don't really like headings, but I think they're useful in this regard. He said that there's a liberal posture 
said there's a liberal caution that is above the word of God. In other words, they regard themselves as judging and interrogating the text and picking and pulling out what they don't like. He said there's a neo-orthodox posture, basically he was trying to be orthodox and cool. There's a neo-orthodox posture that, that, that runs in front of the text. In other words, the, the word of God really doesn't become the word of God until it comes to my hands and my interpretation. He said there's a fundamentalist posture that stands on the word of God. And it's gentle in his critique of that because you know you should stand on the word of God. But he said there's a better posture than that. He said what he calls an evangelical posture, he says we submit ourselves under the word of God. And here's, here's, here's what I see in the second temptation that, that I pointed out. I use this illustration. So I, I, I write a lot of papers, or really used to write a lot of papers when I was completing a couple graduate degrees. And, and people would notice that I had a way with words. They would let me, uh, what's called, proofread their paper. And here's what's going on when you proofread a paper, right? You're standing over the text, and the person who wants you to proofread that text, they're giving you some authority and some license, right? They're saying, if, if, if often would say to me, if you see anything in this text that doesn't sit well with you, would you please go ahead and change it for me? <laughs> That's a task of the proofreader. That you're standing over a text, and if something doesn't sit well with you according to the standard that you set, you just change it. But the evangelical posture, or I'm say the Christian posture, under the word of God, says, no, 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 no. God, if you see something in me that doesn't sit well with you according to this word, God, you just go ahead and change it. And one posture changes the text, the other posture submits him or herself to be changed by God according to the text. That's the posture that we have. We submit ourselves to the Word of God. Because I understand that at any given moment, my thinking about what I think God should do, how many of y'all have talked to me? We've all been, we've been around a block in this. Okay, God, I got this problem. what you should do. We <laughs> do. And the situation works out completely like you did not expect. I just want to let you know that I thank you for not We've all been there. That's why the Bible rehearses for his thoughts. His thoughts are what? So we submit ourselves to his word because we understand that our posture before the word is our posture before God. This is his word, our relationship with him. It, 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 the word is a conduit to that relationship. That's their posture. But number five, you see their penance. Look at verse nine, all through. Verse nine, you see, you see uh, Nehemiah and Ezra in front of the people, the teaching of people. They say, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They were broken. They were what Psalm 51 calls contract. The law of God had been put before them. And in that moment, they recognized that the only appropriate response when the law of God is put before you, is to acknowledge that you've fallen short of it. 
It took them a while to get there. But now that they've been graciously allowed to come back, they're still under foreign rules, but for whatever purposes, according to the sovereignty of God, they're under these purges, but the purges have allowed them to come back to their home, to rebuild their temple, rebuild their wall. They're like, we get it. Ezra is expounding, and his associates are expounding the law of God. And they're what? They're cut through the heart. They're like, you know what? Us not being obedient to this is what God has exiled us from. That they're coming to the realization that it was just that disobedience. It was just their dis, a, a disregard, rather, for the word of God that got them exiled in the first place. As it was for the people of God as comprised then, so it is for the people of God comprised now. But you were in this house, but what Paul said in Romans 3 23, all that falls short. Glory to God. This relationship before the law doesn't just have a function in its Old Testament context, but Paul is banging this drum in the book of Galatians, helping them and us to understand what the function of the law was in our own life. As they see the people of God in the Old Testament, Paul said that 1 Corinthians is written down for our instruction, our example. But Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 24, this law was like a tutor. He calls it a schoolmaster. That the law ushers you into a classroom, sits you down in the seat, and exposes you to a lesson. The lesson has one message. We are wretched. That's the lesson. That, that's what the law does. That is all that has power to do. Not because there's anything uh, missing in the law, but it comes to missing out. So Paul says that this law is literally a pedagogue. It, it, it shows you, it trains you in this truth, and it prepares you for the arrival of Christ. Because you really don't appreciate the one who fulfills the law until you recognize that you broke it. You can't offer a remedy when someone doesn't see the problem. Like, I have a that's But Paul says, and we learn in the text that we see here, that the law produces this contrition. They are penitent. You see something interesting. Lastly, I call it pleasure. There's a lot. Look at verse 12. Now they are breathing. And you can tell by the repetition of the fact that you have to remind you, look, calm down, chill out. These people are broken. Imagine, like, I'm thinking right now of my son, when he's like having one of his meltdowns and he's crying, right, you just have to calm down. <laughs> I can imagine this is what's going on right here. Because they have to remind them, look, look, everybody, it's all good. They are broken. And you see, part of the evidence of the joy that they were led into is an interesting one. Look at verse 12. All the people went their way to eat, drink, and ascend portions of the main bread rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They're happy because they comprehend. Have you ever thought about that? If you profess believer in today, you sit up to the word and actually do it. Now that is a great thing to get it to you in that moment. 
walk away with the inspiration that you want or the, or the, the, the conclusion to your circumstance that you want, but you walk away and you understand something about God, you understand something about his grace and Christ, you understand something about your position in him, you actually get it. Because Jesus will expose this reality in the New Testament when he starts speaking in parables and the disciples are like, yo, what are up with all these silly stories? And he says, you know what, well, to you it's been given to understand. To others it has not. That's why people get off in my day, you have ears to hear. I remember when I was trying to teach that reality to the folks who I was like in the children's ministry. They thought that I was saying that some ear bandit had gone around and snatched people's ears off. But anyone who has their ears left. <laughs> but what he's saying is, those who have been graciously granted, matter of fact, here's what Jesus is talking about with parables. He's saying, come here to some people and keep telling you that with the same parable. So some people walk away from a parable because they, they've been given grace to understand, they've been given ears to hear, like, hey, that's good. Other people walk away like, I don't know. Two different responses, same parable. So it is here, they are joyous because they understand, they comprehend. And another part of this book, it says, what, well, all I get is yet understand. Remember in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, when Paul commends the Bereans, he says that they're more noble-minded than those who were in Thessalonica. And he said they were more noble-minded because when they heard the word, they received it with all readiness, but then they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. Point number two, just want to say a couple things about the preacher. As you can notice, as we walk up the text, this role in it was given central importance, but notice number one, the preacher one brings the word. That's his job. Or in this regard, Ezra brings the book of the law. Now understand, he was going to bring the book of the law whether they asked for it or not. What you finally see in this passage is the people's desire aligned with what their need is. They're telling Ezra to bring the book. You can hear Ezra saying, I was going to bring it. All right. <laughs> Preacher grows, Ezra grows. Here he brings the word. Whether they want it or not. Check out 2 Timothy chapter 4. Pastor Mark talked about, talked about this a lot last week. But not only does he bring the word, but one number two, he reads the word. That morning until midday, he was just exposing the law of God. Just laying it there. Here's what it says God has already spoken. I just need to be a vessel to communicate what he's already said. And then number three, he explains the word. So you see time taken here to unpack what the word means. There's probably some translation going on here too, because again, this group of individuals have been exiled, they've been away in Babylon, they're finally getting to come back. They probably don't have a strong relationship with Hebrew that they used to have, so they need somebody to translate they probably unpack a little bit more. And as an associate, take time to do that. They make sure that everybody understands what's being said. Because at the end of the day, before I get before inspiration is given and kind of exhilaration is given, I just want to make sure you understand what the Lord is saying and what He requires. <clears throat> what was the message here? The message was the law. 
the law of God, but they have failed and would fail to uphold. I want to jump back to the end on this point. They understand rightly that they have not obeyed the law of God. See the reaping, see the grief. But they are extended grace. They are extended mercy. They have a right response to the law of God going forward. They recognize that they have not obeyed. They're broken. They're cut. They're weeping. And what is it that they're told? Essentially, don't, don't, don't trip. Matter of fact, they're told to rejoice. Something's missing in between of that. Or at least I want us to, to see what's missing in between that as New Testament believers that, that we come into this corporate gathering, we sit on the Word of God, we hear how we have fallen short, but we hear how Christ has come into a field, we hear how He has died in the place of all those who would ever believe, we hear how He has ascended and now He's soon coming back, and we hear what? But in this Old Testament context, I think it's important to point out the missing link in between them, because for us, looking back, we know it's who is Jesus. But at this particular point, as Revelation is still unfolding, what do they have here? And I think it's this. This is the seventh month, as the beginning of this chapter indicates, and what typically happened on the tenth day of the seventh month in the Hebrew calendar was the day of the So this is the first day of the month. They're rebuilding worship. They're hearing the law of God being exposed to them, and they're cut, they're broken, rightly so. I think that the basis upon which they are told to be joyful and to be glad during this time that it's called only the Feast of Trumpets is because they know that the Day of Atonement is coming. Now, some commentators say, well, this passage doesn't mention the Day of Atonement, so maybe it didn't take place. I'm a little skeptical of that. And here's why. If they are finally coming back to their place, their land, they got their temple, they got their wall, they're reinstituting worship, I don't think that they're going to leave out the Day of Atonement after all that. But that would be good to say right on back. God, I don't know, we still don't get it. <laughs> so let's just go on back to that. No, no, no. I think what's happening here, and I want you to see this, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12, and even the next couple of chapters, are from the vantage point of the perspective of the This is the people's responsibility before the word of God. And I think that the text doesn't go into details about the day of atonement, even though I think it happens nine days later, is because the people don't have to go and play a their mm-hmm. <clears throat> That's a priestly function. This text is told from the vantage point of the people. And as we know, as New Testament believers, we don't play a role in our atonement. That's a holy, divine act. And the part, the role that we play is messing it up. And God now decides to disciple the act and send his son to live out the life that we could not, we did not live. And to die in death that we deserve. I think that the atonement is in view, and I think that they are being given grace, they are being given mercy, because they know that nine days later, the priest is going to go into that holy, holy, holy to make atonement for their sins. And we don't have time to review it here, but if you just walk through Leviticus 16, walk through Leviticus 16 and have 
the reality of sin in your mind and have the beauty of the Savior in your mind and then you continue to play. Because you see an elaborate process there of what it took to cover the sins of the people of God. And then you hear the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9 and 10 saying how Christ fulfills that function. That Christ is greater high priest that he, he what? He's both the offerer and the offering. I, uh, I often hear renditions of the gospel that to try to simplify and say something like it's all about the unconditional love. Or even recently somebody sent me a clip where somebody was saying that God, God loved us so much that he broke his own law to save us. I now. But I think the theologian John Stott helps us understand something that in the desire to save a people, God faces a divine dilemma. If he ever had one, he faces a dilemma. Because God has these attributes that at any given time as he's trying to fulfill one, he can't frustrate the other. In other words, he's looking at a sinful and because of his holiness, he's rightly saying what that sin deserves is judgment. That would be in line with my attribute of justice, judgment, holiness, righteousness. I can't get blood. I cannot let sin go unpunished. But that's not all that about God. God's like, oh, but I, I, I'm also merciful and I'm also loving. So how do I act in a way that's consistent with my judgment, but doesn't frustrate my love and mercy, but that's consistent with my love and mercy, but doesn't frustrate my justice? That's the dilemma. And the way that that dilemma is solved, this is what, if you are not believing in this, if you want to set Christianity apart, God says, you know what, I'm going to come down and do this. That this is salvation of divine Every other worldview, in some way, shape, or form, says you do something to save yourself. Christianity is the only world that says, you know what? You can't do anything. You have to do it. So divinity has invaded humanity in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ now bears the penalty for the sin of all of those who would ever believe. Or to put it this way, on the cross, the Father treats the Son as if he lived my life. To put it personally. And when I place my faith in the Son, he turns around, the Father turns around and treats me like I live Jesus' life. That is scandal, folks. If that doesn't get you excited, then something's not right. Because even a child, or even at a young level, children, don't like credit being given to somebody else for something that they did. <laughs> and even when I at school, I didn't necessarily like group work. Why? Because I know there was going to be at least two or three people in the group that did no work. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere we're going to have to pick up the last. But when you see that A on the paper, who gets the A? Everybody. And here you have the righteous Son of God, the eternal Son of God, taking on human flesh, living a perfect life in full obedience to the Father, but dying.
and place your faith and trust in him, his works can be applied to your life. Y'all, but that's not good news. We're not going to take a nap. I'll meet you with this. When we were uh, living in uh, Kentucky, my folks were in Chicago, and uh, we would often uh, take uh, 65 North. Uh, this is before you had stuff like the East Pass. This was back in the old days where you had to actually have some coins or something. I don't carry cash at all now. This is back when you went through a toll and you had to have something. And, uh, you know, when I think about that reality, there are a couple of ways to think about the gospel to that. Because I would often pull up to a phone booth, not have any money on me. And you know that moment of shame when you go down your window and look at the person and you just like, Billy, we got another person here paying us right as if the same old song. <laughs> she could say, don't worry about it. Just go on through it. That's how I said it. Really, Pastor, you don't know? That's cool. But what did that do about that law? In order to let me prove, she doesn't uphold the law. She acts like it doesn't matter. I think a lot of people think that the gospel or the good news is that. That God, because He because He desires to save so much with regard to our sins, He just says, But I could pull up, hand on the wheel, window roll down, look at God. Sorry. Billy got another she was like, And she could say, Don't worry about it. Because the man in front of you paid your call. That's a whole different narrative, isn't it? That's not saying that the law doesn't matter. That's saying that somebody has come before you and paid your debt. So you get through, not because you did, but because someone did it on your back. David Pallison calls this, he said he calls this, that the law, the gospel is not unconditional, but it's unconditional. He says an unconditional gospel takes a picture that your sin didn't really matter. But he said the gospel is conditional because he treats you contrary to what you deserve because somebody else fulfilled the standard. That's the good that, 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 That's it. That, that, that's, what we, that's what we have. And when I think about the life that I've lived, and I think about my own sin, and I think about the fact that somebody has come in and paid my this is what it frees us up to do. We worship that. Amen. 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 Uh, in music form, but I think it's 
powerful moment to say. Taste of the beauty of 